Well, our video service starts next week. So next week, some of us will be downstairs in the fellowship hall. I was watching this morning at 9.59, and I looked from the back of the auditorium, and I thought, oh, if more people come, where are they going to sit? Well, the answer next week will be in the pews, because there'll be plenty of room here for people who come uh, after our uh, service or as our service begins, because some of us will be downstairs in the uh, fellowship hall. Because of that, this is the last time we'll be together this summer, I'd like you to take your left hands and stick them out like this, all right, and we're going to sing together. Some of you knew that was coming, all right, you saw it. Okay, so we're going to clap uh, a count of uh, six, actually three, four, but that's all right. Uh, so you're going to clap the person's hand next to you, then your right leg, your left leg, the bottom of your hand, and the top of your hand twice. One, two, three, four, five, six. Their hand, your leg, your leg, up, down, twice. Their hand, your leg, your leg. Oh, good. Here we go. Bind us together, Lord. Bind us together with cords that cannot be broken. Bind us together, Lord. Bind us together, Lord. Bind us together with love. There is only one God, there is only one King, there is only one body, that is why we sing. Bind us together, Lord, bind us together with cords that cannot be broken. Bind us together, Lord, bind us together, Lord, bind us together with love. Excellent, good, all right. If you really despise that, you can send all of your mail to Grace Baptist Church of Millersville, care of Alan Nelson, chairman of the Board of Elders. So, that's good. Now, I'd like you to take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to the book of Acts. Acts chapter 20 is where I want to direct your attention, and I'm going to read from Acts 20, verses 17 through 38, as we continue our submission to God's Word as recorded for us in the book of Acts, the story of the beginning of the church. And Acts chapter 20, verse 17 is where I want to read uh, these uh, 21 verses or so. Acts 20, verse 17. From Miletus, Paul sent to Ephesus for the elders of the church. Verse 18. When they arrived, he said to them, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. From the first day I came into the province of Asia, I served the Lord with great humility and with tears, and in the midst of severe testing by the plots of my Jewish opponents. You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you, but have taught you publicly and from house to house. I have declared to both Jews and Greeks that they must turn to God in repentance and have faith in our Lord Jesus. And now... Compelled by the Spirit, I am going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. 
Now I know that none of you among whom I have gone about preaching the kingdom will ever see me again. It's not a prophecy. It's his supposition, and actually he was wrong. But we'll keep going. Therefore I declare to you today that I am innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of the church of God, which he bought with his own blood. I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Even from your own number, men will arise and distort the truth in order to draw away disciples after them. So be on your guard. Remember that for three years I never stopped warning each of you night and day with tears. Now I commit you to God and to the word of his grace, which can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. And everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak, remembering the words of the Lord Jesus himself, who said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. When Paul finished speaking, he knelt down with all of them and prayed. They all wept as they embraced him and kissed him. What grieved them most was his statement that they would never see his face again. Then they accompanied him to the ship. Now, like many great stories, the Acts of the Apostles here describes the courageous deeds of its heroes. And for the second half of this book, that hero is the Apostle Paul. We started months ago with him being conquered by the Lord Jesus himself. And now for the last several weeks, we have been following him as he has turned cities upside down for Christ's sake. And here he's on his heroic journey to Jerusalem. But this heroism in the book of Acts is heroism with a very specific focus. This is the story of how God formed his church, and these are the foundational men that he used to establish this people. As we read this book and we come to the final third, there's a good question that we should be asking. We've read about Peter and John and Philip and Paul, and here's a good question to ask. What will happen to the church when they're gone? After these heroic foundational men are dead, what's going to happen? Then what's the church going to do? And the New Testament provides several answers to that question. Before he left, Jesus gave one of them. He said, when he goes, he will send the Holy Spirit, and the Holy Spirit will be with us and in us. That is a a crucial answer to this question. And then in concert here in this text, in concert with the Holy Spirit, the apostles have appointed leaders in each congregation that the New Testament calls elders or pastors or overseers, all three titles, one office used all in this passage all three of them are and this passage that i just read enables us to ask and answer a question this is what i want to ask and answer from this this question this passage this morning if if this is the answer if the apostles are gone and this is the answer the holy spirit and elders pastors overseers here's the question how does a church know that it is being well served by its elders, pastors, and overseers? How, how does a congregation know that it's being led well? 
That's the lens through which I want to consider this passage. It's a summary. This is a summary of Paul's seminar for pastors that he holds in Miletus. It's the only extended teaching for believers in the book of Acts. And I want to surface from this passage three ways that a church knows that it's being led well. That's where we're going. But that question that I asked itself, how does a church know it's being led well, raises some questions, doesn't it? Um, the question has some assumptions built into it, assumptions that are worth thinking about and talking about. For, for example, the, 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 the assumption that, that's in this question, one of them is this, that Christ's church has structure, that there is supposed to be a structure to Christ's church. There are some people, they've always been a minority within the body of Christ, but there are some people who say that the local church should have no structure at all, no formal leadership. Formal leadership, they say, is harmful, it's inconsistent with our equal standing before God, and there shouldn't be people who aspire to lead in the church. The people who say that, against a minority view, it's usually said by people who have been really stung by some nefarious church leaders. Their experience has taught them this. This is just bad. And they, they balk against structure and, and they, they ask some serious questions about the Bible and its, the relationship of church membership in the Bible. They've been stung. It's a minority view. It's hard to square, though, that view with the rest of the Bible, which has so much, doesn't it, about elders and leaders and overseers and structure. Here's, a, here's another, another assumption that is in that question here about how a church knows it's being led well. The other assumption is that authority within Christ's church is good. It's life-producing. It should be welcomed. It's a, it's a good thing. That's an assumption that is countercultural, absolutely countercultural, that authority would be good. Some people say, yeah, I know, we need authority structures because somebody's got to pay the light bill and somebody's got to keep the rolls and... and, and um, but, but surely, it's just a necessary evil. It can't be good. It can't be life-producing. It, it's painful. It's uncomfortable. It's, it's dangerous. You may not know him from his role as a shock jock. I bet there's not many people who have ever listened to Howard Stern on the radio here. But you might recognize him from the television show America's Got Talent. He's one of the judges, Howard Stern is. Well, Howard Stern had a co-host on one of his radio shows. Uh, his, uh, her name was Robin Quivers. She was diagnosed with cancer uh, and for 17 months underwent chemotherapy and radiation treatment. And she said that she, she was talking to him once on air about what she learned about life from her experience with cancer. And here's what she said. What I learned is very simple, that your life belongs to you. And it really doesn't matter what you do with it, but it should be what you want to do with it, not what your mother or father or friends or society want. It should be I-directed, and that's the only purpose for being here. That's what a lot of people believe. Um, you should do life your way. You can have it your way at Burger King right now. Um, you, that, that, that life is... I directed. It's, it's about me. I should do what I want uh, for me, and I should do what makes me happy. And the most important thing about life is my ability to express myself as I feel like I am. It's an I-directed life. And there's, there's got to be, because I know it's true of me, there's got to be people in this room who find that at least a little attractive, at least a little bit 
that independence, that lack of control from outside influence is a little attractive. The problem with that, though, is that this is completely opposed to what the Bible teaches about authority. Would you be surprised to know that your response to authority, according to the New Testament, is one of the most obvious signs that you're a follower of Jesus Christ? How do you know you're a Christian? One of the ways that you can tell that you're a follower of Jesus Christ is by your response to good and godly authority that he places in your life. Authority is, is actually the subject of the first few lines of the Bible, isn't it? God, we have this story. God the creator calls the universe into existence. And as creator, he is Lord of the universe. And what does he do? At the culmination of his creation, he makes human beings. And he puts them in the garden. And what does he do? He gives them authority. What are they supposed to do? Work and keep, cultivate and nourish, nurture the, the ground that God made. He gives them authority. And the first and great complication that comes this, to this authority, this authority that is supposed to produce life and prosperity and joy and order, the first and great complication, if, if I can even use that word, it's not, it's not suitable, it's not strong enough, the first complication is when the serpent and then Adam and Eve challenged God's authority. Did God really say that? Does he really mean it? Does he really have the authority to back up what you think he said? The world has been upside down since then. What's amazing, though, is, is that God doesn't give up on authority. What would you think? It would be reasonable for a God to have said after Genesis 3, well, I'm not trying that again. I'm not giving anybody else authority. Look what they did. But he continues. You read the Old Testament, and he, he continues to appoint prophets and priests and kings. He still lifts people up here in authority. In the New Testament, is the story of authority redeemed. Your attitude toward authority, your willingness to accept it, to pursue it, to express it if you have it, to welcome it, is one of the most obvious signs that you're a follower of Jesus Christ. And I, I say that, and I know that it's true, that every single person in here has been burned in some way by authority gone wrong. That's true of all of us. Every person in here has been hurt in some way by, by broken authority. And yet, God still calls us to it. And here in this passage, authority redeemed, how does a church know it's being led well? These verses don't have everything, but they have a lot. We're going to look at three key signs, as I said, and we're going to spend most of our time on the first one. So here it is. How do you know if a church is being led well? Number one, you will see consistency between what your leaders say and how they live. You'll see consistency between what your leaders say and how they live. I wonder if you noticed here in this passage how many times Paul appealed to what they know about him. You see that? Verse 18 in his life. Uh, he says in verse 18, You know how I lived the whole time I was with you. Then verse 20, you know that I have not hesitated to preach anything. And then verse 34, you know, you yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs. If you read 1 Thessalonians 2, you'll find Paul does something very similar. He keeps saying, you know, you saw, you observed this in me. You're witnesses of what I did five times in just a few verses in 1 Thessalonians 2. Paul makes the same argument. Now, why does he do this? Some scholars think that Paul here is defending himself against critics. Do you remember Thessalonica? 
he fled from Thessalonica. He ran in the middle of the night, didn't go back. And it seems like afterwards, some people came in and criticized him. And, and he writes the letter and saying, no, you know what I was like when I was with you. He's been gone from Ephesus for 18 months. Maybe the same thing has happened. So, so he keeps saying, you know, you saw this in me. You, 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 you watched my life. There is a consistency between how I lived and what I taught. One of the reasons I think the New Testament actually tells us that Paul was dogged by criticism his whole ministry. People were constantly criticizing him. I think the, one of the reasons for that is because Paul's model of leadership was different, so different than these that he ministered to, uh, what they were used to. I think that because of what Jesus said about leadership. Do you remember what Jesus said? The kings of the Gentiles lord it over those under their care. Um, but I'm telling you, don't be like that. Instead, he said, the greatest among you should be like the youngest and the one who rules like one who serves. They were not used to Paul's leadership. Now, what you can see here in this passage are some marks of Paul's message in his life. You can see this consistency with what he says about himself. Let me point out three of those marks of his message to uh, to you. Verse 19, the first one is humility. I serve the Lord with great humility. <laughs> Does this strike anybody as unusual that Paul would say that? This is kind of like if you're, if you're involved in social media, isn't this a humble brag? Isn't it? If you don't know what a humble brag is, a humble brag is where you talk about how awesome you are and then also how humble you are at the same time. So if you speak Twitter, here would be a good example, right? Um, so humbled that LeBron James said, I'm the best basketball player he's ever seen, hashtag blessed. All right? There is an example of a humble brag. I am so awesome, and it makes me so humble. Uh, Paul, <laughs> you know I serve you with great humility. Let's imagine here, Grace Baptist Church is going to have a pastor. They're going to hire a new pastor. We don't have plans to do that, but let's imagine we're going to do that. I, I don't have plans, so <laughs> you might. We'll see. So you sit down, the search committee sits down with the pastor and asks him, so tell us, what are your strengths? Well, my first and great strength is my humility, which is astounding. <laughs> Cross him off the list, right? My great humility. This is kind of astounding. But Paul's humility actually, well, they weren't used to humble leaders. I think Paul is telling that his hum humility was on purpose, that way on purpose. And it matches the message that I teach. Let me show you. Look down here at verse uh, 24, right at the end of verse 24. The Lord Jesus has given Paul this task. What is it? It's the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. The message Paul preaches is a message of grace. Those who follow in Paul's footsteps teach and preach a message of grace. We trumpet the kindness and mercy of God. Uh, we don't lord it over people. Authority is not lorded over people in Christ's church because if your message is a message of grace, you have nothing to lord over people. We don't have a word, a message of achievement. We don't preach a message of merit. We don't announce that God accepts people who are good enough like us or who follow the rules as well as we do or who contribute to society or meet certain requirements. We preach a message of God's grace. 
Paul says, we speak openly about our condition that we are so irredeemably bad that it can't be fixed by our own effort. Paul later speaks about us. He says we're spiritually dead, not spiritually disabled, not spiritually handicapped, not spiritually sick, not spiritually dying, not spiritually half dead, not spiritually mostly dead, but spiritually dead, dead. This is, this is what sin does. It wields the weapon of death. This is, uh, uh, and it, it's only, he says, through Jesus Christ, only through his kindness, his sacrificial death for us, that we can be accepted by God. Through him, for his sake. This is a very small example. I'm not sure it, it merits, but it, it will work for a moment. When Kathy and I were in uh, college for spring break, we were dating we went to Florida with a friend of mine. My very good friend in college was from Florida, and his girlfriend was Kathy's roommate. So the four of us went to Florida to Dayton's house in uh, West Palm Beach, Florida, one year for spring break. We drove down, and while we were there, we went to Disney World, because if you're in Florida, that's what you're supposed to do. It's a law, I think. So um, we uh, went, one of the other reasons that we went to Disney World is that Kathy's roommate, uh, Mindy, her sister, worked at Disney World. So we showed up at the gate of Disney World, and out came uh, uh, Mindy's sister, and she gave us tickets, free tickets to Disney World, because she's an employee. She walked us through the gate and took us on a tour, walked all over the place. Uh, I was walking around Disney World, the object of someone else's kindness. It was not there as, because of my merit or my achievement, only because someone else let me in. While we were walking around, she told us about a tour that had once happened. She would frequently lead tour guests, and, or a show. There, there was a show that was starting, and um, right at the beginning of the show, before it started, uh, a tour guide led a group of people to come in and sit in the front row. Some people hadn't waited in line. They came in and sat in the front row. Well, some of the customers got a little unhappy about this, started complaining. Wait a minute. We paid our money. We waited in line. How come they didn't wait in line? And there they are sitting in the front row. That is not fair. Well, one of the Disney employees very calmly and patiently came over to them and said, Sir, those are members of the Disney family. Um, I'm sure the employee did not say this, but if your last name is Disney, you can come whenever you want. You can go wherever you want. You can do whatever you want. You get the best seats. Some people were at Disney World that day because they paid their way to get in. Some people were at Disney World that day because their name was on the door. You can get in. I was there because someone gave me a free ticket. And when you get in for free, it endues you with a sense of gratitude, this sense of humility. We trumpet a word of God's grace. And understanding that sets the attitude and tone of the entire congregation. No merit of my own, his anger to suppress. My only hope is found in Jesus' righteousness. There should be this tone of humility that is fostered by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Now, secondly here, there is a sense of self-forgetfulness. Humility and then self-forgetfulness. Look with me again at verses 22 to 24. Paul says, And now, compelled by the Spirit, remember, He's on his way to Jerusalem. I'm going to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there. I only know that in every city the Holy Spirit warns me that prison and hardships are facing me. However, I consider my life worth nothing to me. 
My only aim is to finish the race and complete the task the Lord Jesus has given me, the task of testifying to the good news of God's grace. I consider my life worth nothing to me. I find statements like that in the New Testament really hard. And Paul makes a lot of them. Um, I think actually, here's the reason, one of the reasons I find them hard. I think it's very easy to overread what the text says. I don't want to minimize what it, but let's not overread it either. Let, let me explain what, what I mean. When I was in college, the drama team at, at school put on a play about Jim Elliott. Remember Jim Elliott, the missionary martyr to the Alka Indians. Jim Elliott is the one who said, he is no fool who gives up what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. One of my professors was a classmate of Jim Elliott's at Wheaton before uh, Jim Elliott went to South America. And my professor said, that's really the way he was. He wrote those things and that's actually how he lived. He was an astounding young man. So the play featured a lot of these great lines from Jim Elliott's life. And, and they sounded a lot like this, I count my life worth nothing to me. And I remember walking out of the theater and thinking to myself, I was so moved and I felt incredibly guilty because there was just no way I knew my life didn't measure up. And I was frustrated because it just seemed impossible. If you count your life worth nothing, if this statement is true, how do you justify brushing your teeth? Or going to the doctor. Or um, I, don't, I don't have time to see a doctor because my life counts to me as nothing. Or going on vacation. Or buying new sheets for the bed. Or celebrating your birthday with cake and ice cream. How do you, how do you justify that if you count your life worth nothing? Hmm. Aren't you just wasting your life? What if, you're, what if you're a plumber or a roofer or an accountant or a store clerk? Isn't it all just useless if you count your life worth nothing? I understand our world is infected with self-indulgence, right? I've sat at too many tables eating cake and ice cream. But put this phrase in its context, all right? Put this phrase in. What Paul is saying here is that he does not allow difficulties and threats to control his behavior. He's not going to avoid doing what the Spirit has clearly indicated he is to do because it's going to be hard. That's the sense in which he counts his life worth nothing. In light of his greater calling, he turns from what would be comfortable and easy. He's not going to insist on his rights. He's, he's going to refuse the comfortable way because the call of the Lord is greater. I count my life worth nothing in light of what Christ has called me to do. Just think for a minute about how countercultural that is. Paul is not I-directed, is he? You're being well-led when you see your elders growing in this sense of self-forgetfulness. Men, men for whom the call of Jesus is more. In a few months' time, you're going to have the opportunity to nominate some men to serve as elders next year. I wonder if you understand exactly what you're asking them to do. Think about this. You are asking them to spend less time at home, to miss good night stories, or to miss lingering over coffee with their wives after dinner. You're asking them to commit to changing their plans when someone needs them, or to spend their day off when, uh, when they had a call, or missing sleep because they get up earlier to pray as part of their responsibilities. 
You're asking them to overcome their reluctance to put the newspaper down or turn the television off when the game's on, when their phone rings and they see it's you calling, you. Sometimes you're not the one that they want to talk to. But you're asking them to overcome that reluctance and answer the phone anyway. See how they can serve you. This is similar to what Paul is talking about, this this self-forgetfulness. The call is stronger than the comfort. I think this is closely related to what Paul writes in verses 33 through 35. We've so far seen humility, self-forgetfulness, and now costly compassion. Costly compassion. The, the message that matches the life. Look at verse 33 again. I have not coveted anyone's silver or gold or clothing. You yourselves know that these hands of mine have supplied my own needs and the needs of my companions. Those are stunning statements to me in the book of Acts because what it says is that Paul worked really hard and supported Timothy and Silas and Titus and all the people who are working with him. And I, I read this and I think to myself, Timothy, what's wrong with you, man? Go get a job, right? Help Paul out. Except that Paul has it very purposeful here. Verse 35, In everything I did, I showed you that by this kind of hard work, we must help the weak. Remembering the words the Lord Jesus himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. That's a wonderful line. It's, it's a challenging line. It's a countercultural line, isn't it? Only people who are recipients of God's grace know this. Uh, One of the things that Jesus' death and only his death does is it frees you from living for yourself. It's more blessed. It's happier. It's more satisfying. It's more life-giving to give than to receive. If you're the mother of young children, you are tested by this every single day, these little nine words that are so painful. It's because little children are black holes of need. I drive by women's, women and babies' hospital regularly, probably twice a week. I drive by, and I, there, a lot of babies are born in that hospital. And the hospital is, that hospital is where your dreams of a peaceful morning, a slow cup of coffee, a moment of peace in the bathroom, they go to die in that hospital. You leave there in that hospital the shape of your body. You leave your career plans. You leave your late nights out. You leave your late morning sleeping in. You leave your summer afternoons. They all go there. You leave them there and you bring home a baby. And you give and you give and you give and you give to that baby. This is God's design, isn't it? It's, it's odd. There are no other he- creatures on earth that are as dependent on their parents for survival as long as human beings are. And it's getting longer and longer all the time. <laughs> Thank you, recession, right? This is by God's design. It's pre-programmed demand. And if you don't know that it is more blessed to give than to receive, I don't know how you do that every day without disillusionment or bitterness or just saying to yourself, I'm tired, I'm tired, I'm tired. This is what the Lord taught us, isn't it? It is more blessed to give than to receive. Now, why did he teach us that? Because giving like this is the most godlike thing that there is in the world. God is love. 
And for all eternity, he has existed, the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And they have nothing but love and delight for one another as they have from the beginning. And it is self-giving, self-delighting love. They delight and love one another and they give to one another. And the Father says in eternity past, let's make a world. And the Son says, yes, let's make a world. And he begins and the Spirit fills the world and beautifies the world. And God says, let's make, the Father says, let's make image bearers. And the Son says, yes. And the Holy Spirit goes in and breathes into them the breath of life. And then those human beings rebel. And God the Father says, let's rescue them. And the Son says, yes. The Spirit says, yes, let's, let's rescue them. And the Son comes in the flesh and God the Father says from heaven, this is my Son, my beloved Son. And for the first time ever in all of a history on the cross, the Son becomes the object not of God's loving delight, but the object of his furious wrath because he became sin for us. And he died and he rose from the dead. And, at, and when, God, when he rose from the dead, the Father's declaration to the whole world was, that's my son, that's my boy, he's risen from the dead. And there's just delight and joy. And the Spirit now is running throughout the world, speaking to people, communicating to them about what the Father planned and about what the Son did. And he's glorifying the Son. And the Father's exalting his Son. And the Son does what he does for the Father's glory. There's just this giving and giving. It is most God-like to give. That's why it's most blessed to give than to receive. To give is the most God-like thing in the whole world. I wonder if you're learning that, if that's shaping your marriage, your friendships. I don't know how you can endure Raising those little children every day without praying, oh God, teach me today. <laughs> teach me today that it's more blessed to give than to receive. The little rugrats. Oh God, teach me that, right? Now there's something here that I want you to see that's in verse 33 in particular. This is, this is an experience that I don't have. Actually, it's in verse 34. Um, no, it's actually verse 35. Well, verse 35, this is an experience I don't have because um, I am paid by the church. Scott and I are paid by the church for the work that we do. We so much appreciate that. (laughs) Um, But our non-staff elders know about this, know about verse 35. Let, let, Let me paraphrase here for a minute. Oh, verse 34. You yourselves know, brothers and sisters... That Alan's hands and Dave's hands and John's hands and Don's hands and Jeff's hands and Ed's hands have supplied their own needs. Their own needs and the needs of Joel and Scott. Right? It's more blessed to give than to receive. Oh, these men know this well, don't they? You are being well led when you see consistency between what leaders say and how they live. You, you probably have heard at least once in the last few weeks about the disaster that is the Ashley Madison website. Uh, Ashley Madison, if you don't know, is a website online. You can go on. I'm sure no one is doing it now. But you could register at Ashley Madison to express your desire to have an adulterous affair. And supposedly, with complete confidentiality, they would match you up with someone that you could have an adulterous affair with. 
Um, Ashley Madison was hacked. All of its um, confidential information has been published online, or at least a fair bit of it. Well, uh, Ed Stetzer is the president of Lifeway Research, and Ed has written a lot about Ashley Madison this week online. And the reason he's done that is because he spent time talking to denominational leaders and church leaders across the United States, across Canada. Ed Stetzer says that he thinks that today, this day, 400 men who are pastors, elders, deacons, ministry leaders, 400 men are publicly resigning from their ministries because their names were on the Ashley Madison website. It's an embarrassment for the church. It's a shame. It's a cause of grief. There's no consistency in those men. Alec Patton prayed, Oh God, help us to be masters of ourselves that we may be servants of others. Now second here, how does the church know it is being led well? Number two, you know it because you will hear the whole counsel of God. You'll hear the whole counsel of God. Paul affirms this practice twice. That's a very King James way to say that, isn't it? Well, Paul affirms this twice. Look at verse 20. He says, You know that I have not hesitated to preach anything that would be helpful to you. And the reason in verse 20 he hasn't been hesitant is persecution doesn't make him stop. He doesn't stop teaching because of what other people are going to say about him or what other people are going to think about him. Now, what's the issue that this day... Uh, we are being tested about in this issue. Homosexuality, right? So that when someone asks you about your opinion and what you think about the Bible says about homosexuality, you don't smile nicely and say something vague about how you don't judge anybody. I'm talking to you, Joel Osteen. Right? Persecution doesn't silence me. Verse 26. Same thing. I declare to you I'm innocent of the blood of any of you, for I have not hesitated to proclaim to you the whole will of God. He's taught them carefully. He's taught them comprehensively to various audiences, Jews and Greeks. He teaches everything, everywhere he can. I know a man, he pastors a church in a city, and because it's a city, it's more transient, much more transient than Lancaster County is. People come and go all the time. He has a plan to preach through as much of the Bible as he can. Old Testament, New Testament, Old Testament, New Testament, chapters and chapters at a time, because he wants, he says, I want them, their spiritual backpacks to be as full of the Bible as possible when they go. Now, we don't have that problem. Uh, it's not quite the same. We don't have that same time pressure. This is still a regular topic of discussion, though, for our elders. What should we teach about? What should we, what should we go next? What sort of topics do the people need to hear about? We talk about this regularly. Why is this so important? Verse 32 tells us why. I commit you to God. Well, the apostles are leaving. What is going to happen to us? Well, Paul commits us to God and to the word of his grace. How is that helpful? Because it can build you up and give you an inheritance among all those who are being sanctified. Who will replace the apostles as they go? God himself and his word. What does his word do? It's the means by which we are built up. It's the word that we, by that word that we receive the blessings that God has given us. Fifteen years ago, there was a, a Kansas City pharmacist who was indicted. He was trying to increase his profits, and one of the ways that he was trying to increase his profits is by diluting chemotherapy drugs. So he's getting chemotherapy drugs, and he was adding saline to them to increase the volume. It, of course, decreased the efficacy. And at one point in time, he was under indictment for 20 felony counts of fraud. 
He diluted the life-saving medicine that people needed, hastening their deaths so he could make some money. Delusion. We fight against the thinking that there are better means out there than God's word. We do the hard labor, the focused, diligent labor, this persevering task of the whole counsel of God. We're not cowed by what other people say. We're not worried about what might happen. We unfold this message. It's a very relevant message. Paul says this is the task. All right, now third here, one of the ways that you'll know that you are being well-led, led well this you will receive heartfelt warnings. You will receive heartfelt warnings. Verse 29, Paul says, I know that after I leave, savage wolves will come in among you and will not spare the flock. Savage wolves is a good analogy. It's a good image here. Uh, the church is a flock, sh- uh, sheep. Wolves are the great threat. He's warning them. He says, keep watch over yourselves and over the flock. There's a positive and a negative aspect to the teaching. Positively, we teach what to believe. Negatively, what to watch out for, what to avoid, what not to believe. Have you ever heard that illustration? Some of you have, I'm sure, about how the Secret Service teaches bank tellers and, uh, or banks teach bank tellers to recognize counterfeit money. Have you heard that illustration? This is a wonderful sermon illustration. I hope I haven't used it before uh, because it's wrong, but I'll get to that in a minute. But they, they say to you, here's how the illustration goes. Bank tellers, in order so that they know genuine money, they handle genuine money all day long, and they give them a lot of genuine money to to touch and handle. And and the way that they recognize counterfeit money is they're so familiar with the real money that the fake money just doesn't feel right. Sounds great. Wonderful. It's not true. Roger Olson is a theologian. He, He heard that illustration years ago, and he went to the Secret Service, and he said, is that true how you do that? And the Secret Service said, no, that's stupid. Who would train somebody that way? We give them the real money and the fake money, and we teach them to tell the difference. We teach positively what to believe. We teach negatively what not to believe and how to tell the difference. This threat sounds strange, doesn't it? Savage wolves. It's not very church-like, is it, to think about savage wolves? Ryan Witherell is our worship coordinator, of course, and he's doing a fine job. And a few weeks ago, he asked the members of the worship team about songs that they really like that we sing and songs that they think we should maybe retire. One of his his nominees was the song, I Love the Church. I Love the Church has great lyrics in all of the 72 verses in that song, right? Okay? The chorus, may Christ be praised, preeminent adored. I love the church because I love her Lord. That's a wonderful line. 47 verses, 57 verses, it's kind of a dull tune though too, isn't it? Not too exciting. We sang the song last week. I wonder if you noticed here one of these lines. This is one of the verses of the song. I love the church, the pillar of God's word. We will exalt the truth till all have heard. We will oppose the lies of erring men that God in grace may turn them from their sins. Does that sound odd to you to praise God? God, you're awesome, and we're going to fight against people who lie. That's strange. Strange way to sing, to praise God. But there are wolves. There are wolves. And I love the church. There's this line that says, We will oppose the lies of erring men that God in grace may turn them from their sin. I'm sure Paul would affirm that, that thought. We want them to repent. But he didn't even say that here. 
They're wolves. Shoot them. Get, get rid of them. Don't allow them to teach and continue. They're, they're out to hurt you, and they really exist. Not everything sold at the Christian bookstore is good for you. It's not all healthy and helpful. There's bad things from people within the church saying harmful things. Look out. You should receive these heartfelt warnings. I've seen this done in our church, not necessarily over teaching, but I have seen this done when the elders have met to implore people to repent with tears in their eyes, imploring them. Now, why is this vigilance so important? Why does Paul emphasize this? Verse 28 it's because the elders serve at the appointment of the Spirit. They serve in God the Father's church. It's formed to the purchase price of the Son of God. Keep watch over yourselves and all the flock of which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. Be shepherds of God's church, which His Son bought with His own blood. There's a value, there's a preciousness that should not be ignored. Richard Baxter wrote this 300 years ago to pastors and to preachers. Listen to what he said. Oh, then, he says, let us hear these arguments of Christ whenever we feel ourselves grow dull and careless. Now he's going to quote imaginatively Jesus. Did I die for them, and wilt thou not look after them? Were they worth my blood, and are they not worth thy labor? Did I come down from heaven to earth to seek and to save that which was lost, and wilt thou not go to the next door or street or village to seek them? How small is thy labor and condensation, con, not condensation, condescension. There's a big difference. How small is thy labor and condescension as to mine. I debased myself to this, but it is thy honor to be so employed. Have I done and suffered so much for their salvation? And was I willing to make thee a co-worker with me? And wilt thou refuse that little that lieth upon thy hands? Well, this is the church. This is God's church bought with his own blood, worth heartfelt, tear-filled warnings. So these are the lessons. I wonder how these lessons shape your attitude toward being led. Two weeks ago, uh, my family spent a weekend at the camp in western New York where I met my wife and we worked during high school and college. It was a, a family camp weekend. It was wonderful. And the camp was founded um, a number of years ago by a graduate of Bob Jones University, which brings certain things to mind, I'm sure, in your imagination. And he brought with him, when he founded it, some of the strictness to the rules of the camp that being a graduate of Bob Jones University might imply. But I, as I saw him there speaking and met him, and I was reminded of what I loved about working at the camp and why I wanted to be there. He's uh, 88 years old. Um, he's clearly a man who knows and loves the Lord Jesus. When he speaks about Jesus Christ and his wonder, smile, lights his face, and when he talks about sin, he snarls. He's had the Bible open before him time and time and time and time again. He would lead, now this is dating it a little bit, right? You know this if you've been around forever. Sword drills have sword drills at camp, and, and he did it all from memory, verse after verse after verse after verse, because he 
put them in his mind. And he prays and he prays and he prays. When you get to be with this man who is so centered on Jesus, you say to yourself, what are a few rules? (laughs) That's the sort of authority that's worth following. It's the sort of authority that Paul models and he sets before us. That's what we're after in our congregation. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and how thankful we are to you for this good word. It's a word of your grace. It's a firm foundation. Lord, I am thankful to you for the men in our congregation who in many ways exhibit these graces. This is the sort of passage, though, that is tailor-made to make us all feel insufficient. Oh, Lord, we pray that you would show kindness to us even in our weakness as we strive to follow our Savior, Jesus Christ. Lord, raise up more men in our congregation to lead this way with great humility and self-forgetfulness and hard-working hands. You are very, very good to us. Jesus Christ, our chief shepherd, you have appointed under shepherds. Protect us from the wolves. Cultivate godly men in our congregation for this task, we pray. We pray it because we are a part of the church that Jesus Christ, our Savior, bought. And it's in his name that we pray these things together, saying, Amen.